0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Welcome, everyone. On today's episode, we have a good friend, Daniel Burka, who is currently director of design, but has such an amazing background that, frankly, I'm not going to do it justice by going through it all beforehand. Um, we'll just do it as part of learning more about you. So welcome Daniel. Thanks
1: so much for having me.
0: So always like to start from the very beginning. And you were sharing with me earlier that today marks the or this this year marks the 20 anniversary of your first business, uh, Silver Orange. And um, maybe we can start a little bit before then, which is kind of what did you study in school? And then what did you do right after that led to the creation of Silver Orange?
1: Well, the Order of operations doesn't quite go like that. I actually started my first company when I was in high school. So we started a design agency with my brother and some friends in high school and kind of figured out a way to to do summer projects that would kind of lead to pay for our college education, which in Canada isn't that much money, but still, you know, it was a, a good business. And then when I was about 18 and just starting college, we actually merged our company with some, some other guys' company and formed Silver Orange, which is a design agency based in Eastern Canada. Um, so I studied history in college, but while I was studying history, I was running, helping run a web design agency that whole time. And as you just said, Silver Orange turned 20 this summer, actually went back to Prince Edward Island, the place I'm from. And uh, we had a big celebration for the first time in the entire history of Silver Orange. And uh the older I get, the more proud I am of helping start a company that lasted 20 whole years. I mean, it's a really rare thing.
0: How big is the team now? It's
1: about 17
0: people. 17. All right. So, yeah, you fundamentally changed the lives of 17 people.
1: Yeah, we, you know, just the, my brother still works there. My twin brother, Um, he's still one of the, the co-founders and kind of co-CEO. And uh, just a couple of years ago, we looked at it and looked how many people between the current employees, their spouses or partners and the children that they have that that business supports and it's really remarkable you know it's a very large group of people and the work they're doing you know a lot of their work is in healthcare they work with you know a bunch of ER docs in LA helping put their educational content online for you know other ER doctors and they work with you know the Canadian government on a really meaningful project to give internet access to people disadvantaged people so you know, they're doing good, solid work over a very long period of time that makes other people's lives better. And as a core business, you know, it supports a, a great lifestyle for, you know, a wide variety of people. It's, it's really remarkable.
0: So what made you want to start anything else? I mean, what, what made you want to move on to the famous brands that you have co-created?
1: Well, while I was at Silver Orange, we actually this was back in 2004. Um, we had the chance to work with Mozilla. So just through some happenstance, we, our creative director Stephen Garrity had written a letter to Mozilla. And said, "Hey, this new browser you've got, which was still called Phoenix at the time. I don't know if any of you guys are old enough to know Phoenix." Um, he's like, "Hey, that you know, web browser looks really promising, but no one's going to take it seriously if it's not you know more professional." And Mozilla had written back to him and said, "Oh, hey, you guys should fix it. You know, it's an open source project. You guys can do the open source design." And we're like, "Oh crap! You know, we just volunteered." Um, so we'd worked with Mozilla on the Firefox brand with John Hicks, your you know, compatriot over here in the UK. Um, and after that work, we did a bunch of work with Dig, dig.com, which you know at the time was you know just a, a nascent company. And after working with Kevin Rose at Dig for for a few months um, at Silver Orange, he asked me if I would move to California and come work at Dig full time. And I'll be honest. The enticement of working to moving to San Francisco and working at a, a new startup was really exciting. So I moved down there, and after seven years at Silver Orange, I decided to kind of go out on my own and try something new.
0: Mm. So just just to so, because twenty years is a big time, and and a lot of things have happened. It's easy to forget how, kind of what the internet looked like back then. You know, we we're both the, the internet was so
1: stupid back then. I know it was. <laughs> I mean,
0: and Dancing Baby, remember those? Um, and so the. During that period of time, a lot of things have, have evolved, right? Like now there's quite a amount of uh, data and a lot of uh, know-how that's been democratized around design thinking. And you've been a catalyst in, in, in some of that. But back then, a lot of that stuff was, was probably non-existent. Yeah, there are a all. few people like, you know, talking
1: about user research, people like Jared Spool or um, Jacob Nielsen. Mm-hmm. But the idea of like prototyping and testing ideas, like even doing user research as we do
0: now, was really nascent. So to to put some context around it, IDEO, um, where were they in terms of some of the stuff that is now kind of attributed to them in in that era?
1: I don't even know. I mean, it really wasn't even on my radar. I vaguely knew there was a company called IDEO down on the pier in San Francisco, and they did some high-end work. But like, in terms of like, I don't think I'd even heard of the word design thinking before I moved to San Francisco.
0: And so day one at dig, what was without having that sort of design thinking that label without having, other than the fact that you, you know, you've been running and owned your own design uh, consultancy, like what, what was like the, the job? Like, what was the thing that you were going to test? If you didn't have a framework for it, like, how, yeah. what was it? What was the thing that you were going to do?
1: I mean, it was product design before we had the label product design.
0: So I was the creative
1: director because I didn't know any other term for it. But our goal was really, my goal was to sit next to Kevin, who is, you know, as young as I was, and take ideas. So it's actually kind of interesting because Kevin's really good at generating lots and lots of ideas, but he's really bad at Knowing which ones are good ideas and which ones are bad ideas right and the ideas are all kind of floating up in his head And you've got a big team sitting around like you know in this room just a bunch of smart people But unless those ideas come down out of his head We're not all on the same page to know what we're gonna do and we've got nothing to go validate with users Mm. right so Informally, my role was to work with Kevin to kind of tease the ideas out of his brain and give them some shape and some form. And now we could test them, you know, both just ourselves as, you know, a bunch of nerds sitting in a room trying to figure out, you know, is this a good idea or is that a good idea? And later on, we got a bit better at actually testing our ideas with with actual users. Mm
0: -hmm. So if you fast forward what you did then into what today would be role definitions that idea of the sort of ideas down to distilling them, down to productizing them, what would that be called now? Like it's that's, that would be like the creative director, maybe that'd be head of
1: I product. wouldn't use the word, yeah, creative very much. It's either, yeah, head of product or, um, you know, director of product design.
0: And then where would, where would you put the product manager below that in terms of differentiation?
1: Well, that's where design really runs into product. I mean, now I'm the head of product and design, on a big global health project. So I kind of have the same role today, it's just much more sophisticated and more difficult. Um, the big difference is, you know, product usually bumps into project management as well, where you're doing a lot more scheduling, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So probably did less of that.
0: So back to those early days at Digg. Um, maybe some funny anecdotes about the the early product and and, and some of the ideas that didn't work out. And, and now that you look back with everything that you know now, that you look back and you're like, crap, why did we think that was going to work? Or what did we do wrong there?
1: Yeah. I mean, Dig was a crazy place. So if you guys don't know, Dig, Dig was a pre, you know, came between Slashdot and Reddit, basically. So there was Slashdot, which was these big kind of clunky forums. Uh, forums. And then, you know, we kind of created this kind of democratized media was the the fancy pants term that you told venture capitalists is what we were doing, Um, and I mean, we were just running and gunning the whole time. I remember like, for instance, you know, this is the early days of even CSS, you know, it was like, we were one of the largest sites built in CSS back in the day, and we originally coded the dig button, you know, the thing that had the count for how many votes a a story had. We coded it so it had three numbers, because like, getting 100 votes was a lot of votes, and all of a sudden, we some big story came along. I can't remember. It was like Steve Irwin died or something. The the cro- crocodile hunter. Yeah. Is that his name? Crocodile yes, hunter. Steve Irwin. Yeah. And uh, you know, all of a sudden, all these people were voting on it, and it was going up. You know, it was like 800 votes, and it crossed the 900 votes. And it's the only time in my life I've ever had a design emergency where we had to make a last minute change to the CSS. So when the number went to four digits, it wouldn't break over the edge of the button. And so we were all like at night trying to fix this thing so it wouldn't like bust on the website. I mean, that was one silly thing that happened. Um, Some of the the bigger challenges were just, we were an early site working at scale, you know? So this is like, you know, Facebook was just starting out, and I remember, you know, it was really exciting when Facebook made it into the New York Times for the first time. We're like, whoa, like Web 2.0, it could be like a big thing. And uh, you know, we do things like, you know, we created a new commenting system, and all of a sudden you just have so much activity and it's like nothing that had happened on the web before. And it was so difficult to manage because you have this really strong vocal user base and the minute you add anything new, they're both incensed that it's new and passionately using it and you have this like deep tension between everyone's yelling at you and you're like, wow, we made something that enables people to yell, like that's kind of crazy. Um, but this is all the, the good and the bad that the, the web's still struggling with, you know, all the, the challenges that you see Twitter dealing with today. We were kind of early pioneers of kind of running into some of those challenges.
0: Yeah. I mean, nobody's figured out how to, how to deal with it. And it's it shaped our society in the when, last eight years, even politics, that matter. Yeah. So you were, at, you were at the beginnings of that. Um, you were at Dick for four years. What, um, what was it just to, for, for the audience to get a sense for how many employees were there when you joined and when, when you left?
1: When I joined, I was the second employee. So there's three of us. Um, And when I left, it was about 110. Okay. Um, Yeah, and to me, that was like a huge company. I was like, oh my God, we're getting security badges and stuff. This is really weird.
0: (laughs) And when you left, um, the the division that you had uh, um, managed or that you had created, um, how many people were within that?
1: We're still a relatively small design org. So I was... Managing, I don't know, five people, maybe. Five people. So a full-time researcher, Mark Trammell, and, you know, a bunch of designers, including Danny Trin.
0: And yeah. and at that time, were you still, I mean, the, the thing is that because you came so early and and, Ke- and you were close to Kevin, this, this may be a tricky question because you already knew that that relationship was a very quick one. Um, but how close to key leadership and strategic decisions were you um, at the 100 Employee mark for the product as it evolved versus you know if you look at organizations that have a design department, if you will, sometimes they're not always very close to leadership and therefore aren't included in that. But yeah, at, at departure, how how plugged in was that to the core of of strategy?
1: Well, that's the thing is is I think formally I was pretty far away from the decision making structure. We were technically under marketing, which was run by a guy named Mike mazer You know, Mike was on you know, on the on board, I think. So maybe he wasn't on the board, but he was in the board meetings. Um, so we were technically under marketing. Marketing was, you know, chief med- uh, marketing officer, I guess. Mm-hmm. And if I looked at an organization today, I'd be like, oh my God, you know, design, you're undervalued, you're not, you know, carving out your position. But because I had a built a personal close relationship with Kevin, that gave me immediate access to the top level decision making. Mm-hmm. So we had a lot of power in the organization. And like in most organizations, that power is not necessarily built on formal structures. right? There are people in the boardroom who don't have power. Mm. right? They sit there, but they don't get listened to, their ideas don't get forwarded. Um, And I'm always pushing designers on this because designers often sit in the corner and then complain when they don't get listened to. And you're like, you didn't spend the last two years building the relationships you need to build in order to you know, exercise influence within your organization. And that's on you. That's design work. Mm. You know, I think too many designers, even PMs, think that their job is either, you know, for designers, they think it's in design tools, and, you know, PMs think it's in spreadsheets. And your design's really in a lot of politicking within your organization. Mm.
0: So with that in mind, if um, Daniel Burka today were to give advice to Daniel Burka of dig time, dig era... What advice would you have given yourself in terms of building out the org to be more effective than it, than it might have been?
1: Well, the biggest thing was to be build a more diverse workplace. Our, our workplace sucked. Um, it was all you know, mostly dudes, mostly guys who look just like me. I mean, all these problems that the internet runs into, you know, the bullshit Twitter's running into right now, you know, any of the big the big tech companies that are really kind of struggling with creating biased algorithms, having you know huge challenges at managing communities, a lot of these are the problems. When Kevin and I started another company called Pounce, so we actually started a company while we were doing Dig. It was not a, not a great idea. I worked a lot. Um, but we had Leah Colfer with us. Just having one female co-founder with us made a huge difference. And we had Ariel Waldman working with us as well, running community. And all of a sudden, you know, we're building a feature and Ariel starts talking to us about, you know, um, stalking. She had had a stalker in, in the past. Mm-hmm. She comes to us and she's like, "Hey, we're building this feature. You need to build the ability to block other users." And we're like, "I don't know, that's not a priority." And I'll be honest, that was, you know, it's embarrassing to look at it now, but I argued with her. I was like, "Oh, we've got other things to work on. The priority issues are around growth. You know, blocking users is the antithesis of growth." I'm like, "You know, we're going to make less connections. We should be making more connections." And she's like, sternly, and I, I'm proud of her, you know, proud that she did this, is she was like, basically, this is like non-negotiable. Like, you need to build this into the system early, into the network early. She was fucking right. I mean, of course she was right. I mean, every woman around the table, I'm sure, is nodding. You know, of course she was right. But, you know, we didn't do these things at dig, And, you know, a bunch of the stupid decisions we made that resulted in a big raucous mob um, were the kind of dumb decisions you make by building a a company by a bunch of re- relatively affluent white guys. Mm.
0: You mentioned that you started uh, a company in parallel with Dig, but you also started another one with Kevin all, uh, Milk. Um, so basically, you had a run of three: uh, buy two, get one free. And I'm just trying to get a sense for the timelines here in terms of when you were working on one, two, three different projects, and kind of how one became another, became another, and why. Well,
1: so when I was at Dig, he and I started Pounce because we saw an opportunity. We we thought you know kind of building a social network around file sharing was really interesting, um and it was really interesting. We kind of ran into the 2008 financial crash and kind of sold it to Six Apart for not that much money, um, but we started that one because we were young and reckless and it just seemed fun. And you know I knew Leah Culver and I thought it'd be kind of fun to start a company with her, mm-hmm. um. But that that thing, I wouldn't recommend anybody runs two startups at once. It's not a great idea. <laughs> you work until like four in the morning. And then I left Dig and joined um, Stuart Butterfield uh, on a game called Glitch. Glitch turned into Slack. So that worked out kind of unexpectedly. Um, I worked on with Stuart because he was somebody I knew really well from Canada and you know, just mutual acquaintances and it seemed like a real stretch of my skills to work on a game so I was director of design on on glitch um, and then I was actually dissatisfied working on the game just because it was a game it was the first time in my life I wasn't able to talk to my grandfather and be proud of what I worked on you know I talked to him my grandfather's an agronomist so an agricultural scientist and spent his whole retirement working in the developing world to help Farmers improve their crop yield. I admired him very much. He he just passed away uh, about a year ago, and I came and chatted with him. I was like, "Oh, I left that previous company working on media, which is I, I thought a fairly meaningful thing to work on." And I was like, "And now I'm working on a game." And I was like, "I kind of cringed when I said it to him." That was part of the reason I didn't I didn't last there very long, because. Mm. Um, I think it's, you know, once one gains a certain amount of privilege, mm-hmm. I think there's even an obligation to work on meaningful mm-hmm. work, which is probably why I work on what I work on now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that was why I left the game. And then I was excited to start another company with Kevin because, you know, starting a company with your friend is is great. You know, it's you get to spend tons of time together. You trust each other. And, um, yeah, we started a company called Milk with uh, Amber Reingout and uh, Dave Peck and, mm-hmm. And another friend of ours named Jeff.
0: So walk us through the the ideation. I hate that word, but it kind of I think it kind of befits the the question. But walk us through that phase where you were thinking about the idea itself and and how it came about and yeah. and why that.
1: Well, the idea with milk was, and this is maybe a little bit naive, but it was to start a incubator that we could generate. You know, Kevin is full of ideas, like I was saying before, and. He thought it'd be really fun, you know, the two of us thought it'd be really fun to start a company together to take a bunch of those ideas and to um, incubate them until you could see whether or not they were were valid ideas or not. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the idea of not limiting yourself to a single startup and starting a bunch, we thought that'd be really fun. I still think it's really fun. I just don't necessarily know if it's the most meaningful way to to make products. Mm -hmm. It lets you kind of flip between ideas. Mm -hmm. But doesn't really mean you go that deep on any big of an idea. Mm. And I think you know, it was mostly kind of the ideas we were coming up with were relatively small, looking back in hindsight.
0: Mm. And then that got rolled up into um, Google, which is why you ended up we at, got, at Google.
1: Yeah, Aqua hired by
0: Google. But yeah. before we kind of get into sort of the, the Google era, um, if, if we look back at, at some of the projects that you did leading up to that, and if you think of... A manager of you or a CEO that has a you in the organization, what advice would you give that founder or that CEO to get the most out of their design team, to get, to get the most out of the creativity and build the right product management practice?
1: Right. So I think the thing I've learned more and more in my kind of product career is that when we come up with ideas within an organization, it's extremely hard to know which are the good ideas and which are the bad ideas. So you've got, you know, 100 ideas on a whiteboard. You can use matrices to, you know, see which ones are the most effort to the most potential reward. You can do all kinds of kind of product management techniques, but it's really hard to know which ones are going to be good, right? Especially the risky ones. You know, like, oh, we might try this risky thing, but if it if it works out great, it will be the, you know, take us into a whole new area for our business. If it's a failure, it could put us all out of business. Mm-hmm. There's all these ideas floating around in companies. And it stresses the hell out of everyone. You know, if you ask, you know, a CEO, like, what keeps you up at night, it's almost always these things, right? It's like, oh, the great unknowns in our business, you know, what are they? They're they're the the biggest concerns. And to me, the greatest power of someone, you know, with my skill set is to go out and validate some of those ideas. You're not going to get 100% certainty until you get a product in the market, but the idea of taking... You know, 10 possibilities and narrowing it down to a few and then going and validating those is, I think, a very, very powerful function within a company. Mm. You know, all these people sitting around the table in front of me, you know, many of you are CEOs now, and you have many sleepless, sleepless nights. You know, I don't need to know you very well to know that's the case. And almost all those things are, you know, the possibilities in front of you are sitting in the fog, and you, you're not sure what to do all the time. Unless you're a much better CEO than anyone I've ever worked with
0: so if, if you look at that as and I know that that's the foundation for the design sprint methodology that you that you guys um, came up with if if we look at that from the point of view of um, all elements that make a company up not just the pixels because I, I know that sometimes when we talk about design sometimes people can gravitate towards that, but I know that it's more encompassing than that how would you encourage um, to think about business model as part of that how how much flexibility or how much should you incline, uh, include the design team around things like pricing just maybe just be inclusive of all those things and yeah. in kind of what you would guide a founder to think through well I mean the whole thing you know I'm definitely not talking
1: about like your brand mm. or your user interface mm. um, I'm talking about like if you are honest with yourself and you sit down you think like well what are the things that are most stressing me out that I'm unsure about it's all of those things it could be hiring it could be you know pricing it could be kind of um whether or not a feature might be you know um how our current users will react to our feature or how would all those 10 million other people we hope to be our users how will they react to to a new feature we we create it's the whole breadth of things are, are testable.
0: So that's that's the reason why I was curious about what you included within what is testable, because I think there are things that intuitively feel more testable than others. You know, that nobody's going to disagree with the view that today, if you test things, I mean, maybe 20 years ago, that would have been something people weren't willing to do, but today, everyone's like, okay, totally get it. You know, you A B test everything. I mean, it's a saying, right? A B test. But when it comes to like hiring, eh, people are a little bit more hesitant I'm going to try this person. When it comes to... uh, I think A-B testing is... I'm not talking about A-B testing. A-B
1: testing is... We already generally know what to do and now we want to optimize it. Mm -hmm. Right? What I'm talking about is validating very early ideas. Like, you know, if we're... Say in hiring. Say we're losing all this talent to the big kids. You know, the Mm -hmm. Facebooks and the Googles of the world. Well, crap. You know, we can't offer the same kinds of salaries or perks as those other companies. So your big question mark is, well, why are we losing talent to those companies? And we've got, you know, obviously some good guesses, but how can, you know, if we could suppose how we might be able to thwart the Facebook and the Google from stealing that next great engineer? Well, we could offer equity. We could offer a better workplace. We could offer the ability to work from home more often. We could, there's like 15 things that, levers that you could pull but you're not sure which ones ha- actually might work. A design team can help you go validate these things by t- actually talking to people. So I'm talking much more about qualitative research than I am about A-B testing mm. things. Fair. I think maybe the biggest risk to most startups is not talking to your fucking customers. Mm. So am well, I allowed swearing on this thing? Yeah, is this like course, network television?
0: No, this is uh yeah, mm-hmm. totally. You can do anything you want, um, except spill coffee. Uh, but one of the things that, that you did really well with your time at Google Ventures was take this, this thinking, this, this, um, methodology and put it into what became a book and, and, and movie, which I, I think, I, I don't think I told you that I, I went to go see the opening of it here in, uh, in London and, uh, yeah. And I was like, Oh, there's Damien says so is, is quite cool to, to see you in person there. Um, maybe you can walk us through a little bit about that journey from all those live experiences that you had to then putting it into something that you could then teach to the portfolio of companies uh, from GV. And then maybe maybe share a little bit of the anecdote around Blue Bottle and how you help them through their evolution. Sure.
1: So Milk got acquired by Google. I ended up pretty quickly at Google's venture capital arm, which had been one of our investors when we were doing Milk. Um, and it was really fun. You get to now work as a basically a consultant with all of the GV investments. And so I'd been on the startup side of things for for quite a while for I don't know 6 7 years. And now I got to work with like 400 startups on all their challenges. Everything from Blue Bottle Coffee, which is, you know, literally a coffee company, to all these consumer, you know, internet startups to like a corporate networking company or Zipline, which does drone deliveries of blood and drugs in like hard to reach clinics like there was this giant range of, of challenges. And so every week you'd be working with like four or five different companies. Um, and the most interesting thing was to be able to take the lessons that we had learned, you know, the experiences of being a founder, of being an you know, early product person, product designer, and try to apply those to all kinds of different problems. Um, and at first I thought this was like, A fairly bespoke thing, you know. You sit down with a company, you listen to them, and you offer experience from your own perspective. And when I got there to GV, Jake Knapp and the rest of the team. So I was the last design partner to join the team. And Jake Knapp and Braden and John and Michael had already started um, this thing called design sprints. And I was super skeptical. I was like, Ah, you can't codify, you know product validation, like every company's different, you know, there's, there's no way this will work. And I went and sat in on the first one and I was like, oh my God, this is like a process. And I'm pretty, you know, allergic to process generally, but it's a, it's a really flexible process that moves really quickly. And so I was actually really impressed. And, you know, I can't take much credit for having invented design sprints mm-hmm. or anything, but, um, the idea of, Using rapid prototyping that way was something I was already doing fairly intuitively at you know at at Dig and Milk, and to see it done in a way that scaled up to larger companies, I thought was really rad. Mm. And um, the more we did them, you know, I ended up doing I don't know forty or fifty sprints probably by the end, and uh, it really does apply to a lot of problems.
0: Mm. So because now when you look at when you ended that role, it was two thousand eighteen. I mean, this is only like last year. I think when we were talking about early days, there was no no information about any of these things. And now, when we're talking 2018, pretty much everyone who's starting a company has access to a lot of this know-how and knows about um, the idea of of design and how important it is, and and implementing that as part of their 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 company's development. How much did you see a, a recurrence of the same problems? Like, if you had to maybe share, what are the top three things that even late into the game in 2018, where a lot of the stuff is still democratized, the the mistakes that you saw over and over again, founders making?
1: Yeah. I mean, the the biggest problem I still see. So I think everyone plays lip service, pays lip service to the idea that like product design or product validation is important. But when you've got a team of 10, 20 engineers sitting across the table from you, and they look idle, you're going to throw half-baked ideas over to the engineering team as a list of tasks, and they're just going to build. It's like a fucking locomotive, right? And everyone looks at, at developers, and they're like, well, you know, that's a expensive resource, and if they're not building, I'm losing money and losing opportunity. You know, obviously, as a startup, you're really worried about running out of runway. I think this is still a massive challenge. The idea of running an experimental product org at the same time as running a production product org, And this has been the most interesting thing on the project I work on now, because I have a fairly large engineering team and a fairly large design team. And what we're doing is we're parallel tracking the new idea validation process and the product development process. So the biggest problem I see in startups is they don't test their ideas enough and frequently enough. It's more like a special occasion thing. Oh, once a quarter we'll run a design sprint and it feels like a huge amount of effort and like we're taking a whole team out of our product development, you know, pipeline and putting them in a special room with like snacks and having them work on like special stuff. That that's not a great process. It needs to be baked into the way that you validate ideas, mm-hmm. right? All these ideas that CEOs are stressed out about and losing hair on. They need to be validating them much more frequently and getting in front of customers much more frequently. I still think the way user research, for instance, is used within most startups is both late and undervalued. You rarely see a good user research process in a company that's under 200 people. And it's the companies that are under 200 people that need to be fucking talking to their customers more because they have the most to risk by building the wrong things. Mm. And they probably have the least understanding of their customers Mm.
0: because they're early. I think you you said something interesting a second ago about the design team versus the engineering team, and I think there's a delineation that that implies, and I'm trying to understand in your mind what that delineation is and how do you reconcile uh, leadership across both and thought le- and thoughts leadership across both
1: yeah so I'm generally a fan of fairly multi-talented designers so if a designer can code i'm not going to get into the whole should designer code argument but i mean generally speaking the more versatile you are as a designer the less of a gap there is between the engineering team and the design team Mm. so i'm a fairly decent engineer i would never call myself an engineer but i can you know work as a kind of a technical p.m. with our engineering teams um i do think though there's obviously room for specialization i don't want every one of my designers also being like a hardcore android engineer right um so on my design team i've multi talented designers who are mostly can do some user research are very good product designers and ui designers and can do some brand research or, sorry some brand development and then on the engineering side you know you try to hire engineers who at least have worked with designers closely and can build a process together with designers. So it's not this over the wall from design or product into the engineering team. I still see lots of teams that do this. They literally sit next to each other and don't talk to each other. Um, or that the designers think that they can just put things into Zeppelin or you know whichever tool you're using to hand over design and just be like, oh, well, it's ready for the engineers. And you're like, have you talked to them about it? Like do you guys have a plan together? And they're like, oh, they'll look at Zeppelin, they'll know what to do. And you're like, they won't though.
0: Like, that's not how good products get made. Mm. And maybe you can walk us through a little bit more the level of help that you went into at GV with companies. Uh, You know, the the example that you shared with us before was around how you helped Blue Bottle think through um, their their new website and, and how to connect with their customers. But to what depth did, did you need to to go into with founders to really transform the, the their out, output?
1: So we were working, there were five of us, and we were working with a lot of companies, right? There's 400 companies in the portfolio probably when I left. And so it meant that we could do some in-depth work with some of the biggest investments, um, you know, where we owned a large percentage of the of the company um, or where we were, you know, particularly interested in the problems. Mm. But it was really maximum you know two or three weeks of work with a company our main goal with them wasn't necessarily to solve a specific problem mm-hmm. so much as to teach them a new way of working mm-hmm. and so that's where the sprints were really helpful and being able to kind of codify something like sprints into you know a real process with um, specific exercises was really helpful so when we worked with blue bottle for instance they had a small tech team that was building out their new e-commerce platform, and they had lots of kind of guesswork about how to sell coffee to you know online to sell coffee to people, which is a surprisingly difficult problem. right? You've got twenty brown bags of coffee. How do you actually explain these to 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 people, which one is the the best bag for them? Um, and we went in to solve that problem with them, how to choose between twenty brown bags of coffee but the real goal was to teach them how to fish on their own mm. and so we were you know using a design sprint as a way to show them how to validate kind of a complex idea
0: mm. and during during that process would you say that people left that process and internalized that that thinking and then when you came back you know a month two months later you saw that there was an adoption or do you find that it's almost like something that needs to be intrinsic to the founding team prior to investing is it taught or is it is it built from within
1: it's definitely teachable you can definitely change a, a team it, it's it's not you're not born as a product validator you know i don't think that's definitely not a thing there are definitely some people who already kind of you know speak the right language and you know already have taken it to heart one of the challenges at gv is because you're working with so many companies you know, which one, you know, how in-depth can you get to really kind of positively influence their product or especially their product process? It's arguable. Mm. I think this is one of the challenges of venture capital is how much influence can you really have when you're really just giving advice? Mm. And this is part of the reason I eventually left is, you know, working venture capital is like, it's intoxicating because you feel right all the time, mm. right? Because you're like carrying around a big bag of cash. And you get to meet with the CEOs and the heads of product and give them advice. And if they take your advice and they succeed, you are genius. If you give them advice and they don't succeed, well, they probably didn't make good decisions down the line and like didn't really take your advice the way you
0: would have done it. Mm, yeah, there's, a whole you just feel, there's a whole Instagram meme channel around that. Is it really? Yeah, yeah, it's hilarious. I'll show it to you later. I mean,
1: it's like yeah, <laughs> shooting fish in a barrel. It's,
0: it's pretty easy. But maybe maybe with that hat on, because I mean... It's interesting, and I want to get into what you're doing right now. It's interesting, you were a founder, then you were in venture, and, and you saw a lot of the the dangers of, of venture in in not just how venture tries to help companies, and, and you, you just mentioned it right now, but also in how additional funding, and I guess with GV, it's tricky because you guys were able to to finance companies for quite a while. Um, But as you were helping companies, how did you see founders navigate both internal design and, and experimentation at the same time as trying to go fundraise and, and trying to present a unified view about what they're doing when, in fact, there's this chaos. How, how did you manage that? How did you help founders think through that? And, and what was the examples of the, was that you saw do it the best?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting question because, you know, as founders, you're going to want to, you know, on the one hand, when you're talking to a venture capitalist, you want to look competent. But competency can be, hey, we're looking at our numbers, and I honestly can tell what's going on, and it may not be perfect. You know, we have lots of challenges, but let me talk to you about the challenges and how we're going to solve them. That's the honest way of talking to a venture capitalist. But the way you see a lot of people doing it is like looking at their numbers and trying to show their competence by, but everything's rosy up and to the right. Um, I'm sure that works with some VCs, Mm. um, but that's obviously a dangerous way of looking at your own numbers. Mm. One of the things that we did a lot, you know, as a design team at GV, our primary role wasn't vetting companies for investment, but we did it, um, on, on, especially on some of the larger investments. And one of the big challenges is a company is generally raising money. You know, when, when things are going well, a company is raising money in order to be able to tackle a larger problem or a new market. That's often the case right? It's like, hey, we managed to get the early adopters, but our next goal is this big new group. Say it's, you know, we we did well with small, medium businesses, but like the enterprise, it's a whole different beast and we're going to need to raise, you know, another $50 million to go do that. That's a really pretty common at the, you know, C or D level. And as a design team, we would go in and talk to their product team about kind of how they're going to cross that bridge. And it was really interesting because we met with you know a couple of kind of famous burnouts now. I'm not going to obviously name their names, but we met with, I remember meeting with one of them and we met with their CEO and their, their entire product org and they thought they were like asking us for advice. And what we were really, it was kind of like a Trojan horse. We were in there asking them questions about like how they were going to, you know, figure out the, the enterprise market. And their basic answer was like, we're just going to do what already worked for us and keep doing it. And we're all like, the enterprise world's totally different. Like the way that the purchasing process is different. The way that you manage teams within like a large org are fucking weird and difficult. And, you know, um, security practices are totally different. And, um, you know, we came back and we're like ra- waving red flags when we came into the office. Yeah. Um, so... You know I, I think that's one of the most valuable things to be able to show to a venture capitalist is the hey we're doing pretty good now but look we've got a process in place to use the money you're about to give us well to go tackle something and we've got these you know i, I really like um you know mark Andreessen's line the the having strong opinions weekly held yeah. i think that really works well for founders is you have to have some level of Irrational confidence to be a founder of a startup. You know, everyone's telling you your idea won't work. Everyone's telling you like that you're you know, thinking too big. And you're like a little bit of a crazy person. You're like, oh no, I'm not listening to you. I've got this idea, it's totally gonna work. And you don't know it's totally gonna work. But like you say it's totally gonna work. You're a little crazy. But the trick is, is to be able to go and take that confidence but go test it as quickly as you can. And that's why I really like that line. I think he's totally right. And if you can exhibit that to, to VC, I think um, you can build trust with them mm. because they don't think you're like, they've got lots of people coming in the door every day and saying they've got the next you know $10 billion idea.
0: Next dig. There you go. Well,
1: Jake drove off a cliff, so there's that. Oh, man.
0: Um, well, maybe that's a good point to talk a little bit about what you're working on now.
1: Sure. Um, so about two years ago, almost exactly two years ago right now, um, one of the CEOs uh, in the Google Ventures portfolio, this guy named uh, Farzad, introduced me to Dr. Tom Frieden. Um, it was really funny. He actually sent me an email and he says, um, I was talking to former CDC director Tom Frieden last night. He was a friend of his. He's like, I told Tom you should do a design sprint on his new project. Can you talk to him for an hour? I was like, I Googled Tom Frieden and like, you read his bio. like He's got He's one of those people with a real Wikipedia page. And uh, <laughs> yeah. he, was bio, he was like, he worked on the, this big tuberculosis program called Dots in India, and then he was the head of health for the city of New York under Michael Bloomberg. And then he ran the CDC for Obama. If you guys aren't familiar with the CDC, it's like basically holding the fort against you know Ebola and H1N1 every, around the every world. Every good
0: science fiction movie has at least one CDC person in
1: it. Yeah, and usually when things
0: are about to go sideways. Exactly,
1: yeah. yeah. Um, so Tom ran this, the CDC. And I was like, yeah, of course, I'll talk to him. And so when I talked to Tom, he was telling me, he's like, I left the CDC when the new administration came in. I looked around, you know, basically, what's the biggest impact, positive impact I can have on the world? Cardiovascular disease is the biggest killer in the world by a long shot. So cardiovascular disease causes heart attacks and strokes and kills more people than all infectious diseases combined, kills more people than cancer. And if all you did was help improve the... Control of hypertension. So people with high blood pressure. If you help them get their blood pressure under control, you could save 100 million lives in 30 years. I was like, that's a pretty good pitch, you know. Like I've heard a lot of ambitious people in Silicon Valley, and uh, you know, Tom told me, you know, he had written an article in the Lancet uh, with Michael Bloomberg about how the goal to save 100 million lives in 30 years. And I'm like, I mean. You sound ambitious, but not just for rich people. I mean, that's pretty rad. Yeah. Um, so I met up with him and actually got permission from GV to do. I volunteered and did a design sprint with him along with a couple of my colleagues at GV. And um, that project went really well. It was really interesting. And the the goal is, if you're going to run a large scale hypertension program, and we're talking like really large scale. There's 200 million hypertensive patients just in India. You know, Ethiopia has you know one in four adults has hypertension, 110 million people in Ethiopia. Um, So we're talking enormous numbers of people. And if you want to control hypertension, you need to do a whole bunch of public health things. So things like improving diets by reducing salt and banning trans fats. And then for all your existing hypertensives, you need to um, get a simple treatment protocol. So a simpler way of treating patients, Mm -hmm. buying crazy amounts of drugs. So just large scale generic drug, purchasing, which is you know a difficult challenge on its own, you train a whole bunch of people to treat hypertension better, so clinicians, and then you have to have a system for monitoring. And the system for monitoring in most health programs is still done on paper. There's a paper registry systems for, say, tuberculosis. Um, but hypertension is this, such a huge problem that paper doesn't scale well for it, right? So it takes up enormous amounts of time in order to manage the paper. And so his goal was to make a digital system to to manage all these hypertensive patients in rural clinics in India and Ethiopia, Bangladesh, China. Um, And it's a very large-scale problem. It's been very hard to do. So other systems for monitoring like this have failed. Um so he's like, "Oh, you know, can can, can we possibly make something work because if we can't make something work, the whole system might fail." Mm. Um and I was like, "Oh, sounds like my kind of challenge, you know, it's mm. fun." Um so I left and and joined um I left GV and and joined Tom and his merry band of public health people on this project called Resolve to Save Lives, which is Housed under a a not-for-profit called Vital Strategies, Mm.
0: and where would you say you are? Like, if 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 you look at it as a loading bar, where are you? Thirty percent loading, twenty percent. Oh
1: no, like five, four percent. Really? I mean, we're in India, so so right now the software launched just over a year ago in India, and it's currently being used to manage like one hundred fifty-four thousand patients. One hundred fifty-four thousand patients—a lot of patients. But we're talking about you know two hundred million hypertensive people just in India. Um, we're going to launch in Bangladesh, which is another 160 million people um, in November or December. Um, and then Ethiopia, just another 110 million people in January. Um, cross my fingers. That's cool. that's the goal. But yeah, we're just at the earliest stages. I mean, it's, it's kind of that challenge that many of you startups are going to run into is we have lots of active users. You know, we're about 450 hospitals right now. And... It's really tempting to make products for those 450 hospitals when we make improvements, but you have to remember that the other 40,000 hospitals we're not in yet are our biggest market. And so we need to make sure we satisfy our existing users because there are busy clinicians in these these rural hospitals, but we also need to make it scale to these 40,000 other hospitals because it's going to be enormous if we're successful.
0: So this, this sounds like one of those epic stories where if like... All the years, the last 20 years of a career have been a buildup to the most epic design sprint ever. Um, <laughs> so we look forward to, uh, to hearing how it goes soon and, uh, and just want to thank you for taking the time and joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.